You're listening to episode 205 of the Mad Chatters podcast, October 10th, 2018. Most everyone's mad here. <laughs> Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of the Mad Chatters Podcast, your very important date with the happenings at Walt Disney World and around the Disney Universe. My name is Derek, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy. Oh, hey, that's me. Reach out and touch someone, or actually, uh, don't. And back for a second time, special guest, Jonathan Harville. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How are you? I'm doing well. Jeremy, please don't touch me. (laughs) Sorry, my bad. My bad, guys. Okay, so Jonathan, it's October, and I've had a conversation with you and have discovered that you love scary movies. So my question is, what scary movies are you excited to watch or rewatch this Halloween season? Um... I mean, it's cliche to say Halloween, you know, the original Halloween with Jamie Lee Curtis, but I, I mean, it's one of the best. I, th- I mean, it's my favorite horror movie. I'm excited to watch that. Um, my wife now, Brooke hasn't seen it, so she. I'm excited to show her. Doing like some kind of remake with that, or is that? Am I missing that? It's a sequel that pretends like none of the other movies in between happened except the first one. So I'm so excited about it. That's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that's my kind of sequel. Because sometimes yeah. you get bogged down and you're like, oh, do I have to catch up? It's like, no, just watch the first one. And it's not just catching up. So many of them are, are bad. Yeah. If not every <laughs> sequel. So I'm, I'm excited that they're just forgetting all those and bringing Jamie Lee Curtis back. So When you said Halloween, I thought you were going to say Halloween Town. I do love Halloween Town and Halloween Town 2. Oh, I haven't seen the second one. Calabar's Revenge? Oh. Isn't there... <laughs> And there are like four of them. Yeah, but they're different actors, and well, maybe the yeah the fourth one's a different actress, but I one and two are good. I think they're all for sale at Target if you really want to see them. I feel like I should, as a Disney podcaster. What well, didn't you at least see the first one? Because when you did your decom marathon some yes. some year ago <laughs> yes when disney re-aired all their decoms that was the first time i saw the first one and it was my favorite of all the ones i saw yeah it's really good now i personally love under wraps right the mm-hmm. disney channel original movie that really is a disney channel original movie from like 1996 it was like the first time they ever showed a fully original like they made it specifically for Disney Channel. It wasn't like a replay of a movie on Disney Channel, which they had kind of done before. It's so good, guys. You need to see it. I saw that one, and I saw Phantom of the Megaplex. Okay, that one, yeah. That one. <laughs> that one. <laughs> I've never seen either of those two, but Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire. Okay. Have you guys seen that one? See, I was never a fan of Caroline Ray. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I love that one. Now, I haven't seen it since I was probably like, nine but i loved it okay and they're all halloween themes see yeah. so 
keeping it on topic. All right. Well, speaking of topics, today our topic is Disney storytelling, and we're excited to have Jonathan on here to help us dive into some of these stories that Imagineers have created. But before we get to that, we're going to do a couple Mad Chatter segments, one you've heard before and one you have not. Teaser. So let's get to it. This is Jeopardy! Uh, welcome everybody to uh, to Jeopardy. I am your host, and today, like always, we provide the answers and the questions. Are you guys ready? Let's do it. The answer is vast and empty. What is the seating area during most showings of Rivers of Light? Oh, you jerk! Ouch. <laughs> I just speak the truth. It's all because they took out the live actors. I blame that. Hmm. What is the universe of energy? Mm. Oh, I walked by that the other day. And just to see the shell that remains, it hurt my heart. Yeah, it's sad. Oh, I think you're talking about like actual energy. Just kidding. I didn't think that. Science nerd. Okay. (laughs) Uh, uh, what is my wallet after food and wine? Yeah, you ain't kidding. And my and my stomach, because those samples are not big enough. The answer is 53. What is the total number of hours over the course of 200 episodes Jeremy and I spent waiting for Matt to arrive? <laughs> <laughs> A little behind the scenes there. Yeah. But I have another one that's more like parks related. <laughs> what was the total budget in dollars for the first ever Disney Springs Christmas tree trail? <laughs> <laughs> Two burns in one. That's very good. Uh, what are the number of ducks surrounding your table outside Casey's corner? <laughs> yes. Uh, or a uh, flame tree barbecue. Yeah, or those white birds with the long beaks in Frontierland. Uh, uh, 53. What are the number of weeks in a year Epcot has devoted to some kind of festival? <laughs> hey <Hey-o. laughs> It's nonstop. Uh, the answer is, it's a little light bulb that blinks. What is... The current state of the Osborne family dancing spectacle of dancing lights, <laughs> whatever it's called. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Uh, R.I.P. Uh, what is the rooftop lighting at the Grand Floridian? Oh, <laughs> I'm not aware of this. No, it's just so many lights are out. So mm. <laughs> it's a shame all the time. Uh, what is how I describe the Yeti to people who don't understand? <laughs> oh my gosh, that could not be more accurate. <laughs> uh, what is, or excuse me, the answer is, make it a super stretch. Well, this is a callback to earlier in the episode already. What is the most common response when people see the portion sizes at this year's Food and Wine Festival? <laughs> 
which doesn't quite make sense <laughs> unless you order like a hot dog <laughs> or french fries or something those pork sliders make it a super stretch yeah but for real like a little off topic but food and wine i just it's not even a bargain for me anymore because it's really it's kind of expensive and it doesn't fill you up it's expensive and if you go on the weekends you're waiting in line for a really long time for something that's good but only like two bites yeah so i understand the disappointment i don't want to get on the food and wine hate trail but uh i'm I'm starting to walk in that direction uh what does octomom say at the stroller rental uh uh (laughs) (laughs) an octomom reference wow i know yeah. About ten years too late. But. We can check that one off. No, no more references for her <laughs> for another ten, ten years. We're good. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, what is me buying pants after a night at Ohana? Yeah, I thought we might go to Ohana with that one. <laughs> also, back to the Octomom. I'm just picturing her saying that with like a wink, you know, and the cast member's like, "We don't have that." <laughs> <laughs> Alright, and uh, finally, the answer is... What is a sound I would rather hear than listen to Neil Patrick Harris sing Celebrate a World Full of Magic during that awful World of Color show? Wow, you're so hateful tonight. Mm. I am, I'm so sorry. It'll get better. Uh, what it feels like standing in the outdoor queue of Slinky Dog Dash at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Oof. Is that you? That's me. I'm going to stick with the theme for this evening. What is me checking my bank account the day after being at Food and Wine Festival? <laughs> yeah. Well, Disney is making lots of uh, live-action remakes. That seems to be the new trend. You know, about 10 years ago, it was uh, parks-related attractions that were getting turned into movies. And before that, it was animated sequels. Everybody remembers the Eisner years. Uh, But now the new trend is uh, live-action remakes of animated films. And there seems to be no end in sight, as this week... Lilo and Stitch, live action Lilo, Lilo and Stitch has been announced, which I actually think might be pretty good. You know, I, I think that'll work well in the live action medium, but but we'll have to wait and see. I think it has potential. I just, I don't think enough people have seen and appreciated the animated movie for it to be already made into a live action. It's only, it's only 16 years old. That's true. 
But, you know, we have Dumbo coming around the corner here. Uh, there's another one, right? Mulan is, is currently filming. Aladdin has been announced. Oh, Lion King's next year. Lion King, yes. Yeah. So, you know, again, no end in sight. So we had the idea that what if we were in charge of casting these live action animated films? And what if a Disney executive came to us and they said, we have this actor that we've already paid that we have to put into a film. And you had to cast that actor in a live action animated remake. Could be Pixar, could be any of the live action movies that have yet to be made. That's what this segment is. And that's why we call it Cast That Celebrity. Cast That Celebrity. So, first one. Imagine you're sitting in your office. Here comes uh, here comes Bobby Iger, knocks on the door. Hey, we got this movie. We just signed a big major celebrity. What are you going to cast him in? Oh, who's the big celebrity? Al Roker from the Today Show. The one and only Al Roker, who just made his Broadway debut. I don't know if you all saw this or not. I did. I missed yes. it. He, he did a, a one night only in Waitress. Yeah, very interesting. Has he ever starred in anything other than as as himself, you know? No, I'm pretty sure he went to school to be a way. He went to school to be a, a weatherman. Okay, <laughs> he's not an actor, but <laughs> I couldn't think of it like any appearance he'd had on like Law and Order or anything. No, no, no. I mean, his celebrity has come from being a goofy weatherman for <laughs> however many years on the Today Show. And personally, I kind of like Al Roker. Remember, he pooped his pants at the White House. Do you guys remember that story? <laughs> what? <laughs> You no. never heard this? <laughs> so, like, he wrote a book. Well, he's written several books, but he wrote a book about his life. You know, he used to be huge, like, like huge. And then he did the the gastric band, I think, and lost a bunch of weight. But that caused some stomach problems and some gastrointestinal problems. And he tells the story about being at the White House for a certain function and uh, accidentally pooped himself and went to the bathroom and just took off his drawers and threw them away <laughs> and just went on with the evening. <laughs> What administration? I, I believe it was the Obama administration, but uh, oh, recently, okay, wow, well, yeah, yeah. This is this is this is a recent thing, but oh my god, yeah, it's worth it's worth looking up on uh, on YouTube the interview just to hear him say, "I pooped myself." <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of the, the kind of uh, star quality that we are getting here. Uh, so <laughs> let's start with Jonathan. Jonathan, what role are you going to be casting, Mister Roker? I, I, I poured over this. I really did. and uh, But I for some reason, I could not shake uh, the dual role of Mr. Darling and Captain Hook. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awful. Just, I, I could not. <laughs> I could not stop picturing Al Roker saying, I'll get you for this pen if it's the last thing I do. But it's Al Roker. I don't know why but i can't shake that image out of my head fascinating yeah wow. okay <laughs> i was kind of stumped with this one so i cast him as just like the voice of a cg character and it's flounder i could just kind of i don't know I, i'll be completely honest like he gets on my nerves just a little bit like he's always cheery and just like his voice is just a little higher pitched then I feel like it's natural, and to me, that's Flounder. <laughs> wow. Isn't Flounder a you child? just revealed a lot about your soul on this show. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a great answer. Let's just move on. <laughs> Derek hates cheery people. <laughs> no, that's not true. 
little hyper. That's not true because you're friends with me. Um, sure. My answer. <laughs> my answer is uh, Chef Gusto. If they ever redid uh, Ratatouille. Yes. Yes. And I, even though Al has lost some weight, he's still a little chunky. So I feel like he could do a good job with that role. Plus, if you watch the Today Show, you know he does enjoy cooking as well. So I think he could add some authenticity to the character. I like that. For inspiration, I watched uh, a segment with Al Roker and uh, Paula Dean. And have you seen it? It gets kind of raunchy. They get a little raunchy with their with their dialogue. It's really strange. I they're like not, but I'm cooking. <laughs> I'm oddly turned on. Uh, <laughs> oddly being the keyword there. <laughs> yeah. All right, moving on quickly. Uh, all right, next, our next actor we have to cast into a live-action Disney animated remake. Award-winning comedian. <laughs> I actually think this guy is funny. I think his shtick is really funny. Uh Carrot Top, the actor Carrot Top, or the comedian Carrot Top, who, by the way, is like the king of Las Vegas. His show sells out. I mean, next to Celine Dion, he's he is Las Vegas. So, um, what are we gonna? How are we gonna do Carrot Top? Look, this was a softball here. I, I couldn't, you know, I didn't really grow up knowing who Carrot Top was. Um, so just doing some Google searching today and seeing what he looks like. I mean, we're going with Merida here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Gender bender. (laughs) Exactly. With a a Scottish accent, bow and arrow. I mean, I saw that he does a lot of, like, prop comedy. Yeah. Bow and arrow. I think there's a lot of, you know, he's probably used that one of his acts before. I think think this just makes sense, right? It does it? I (laughs) I don't know. If you're going to do, if you're going to do a gender bender sort of, uh, or you could go, you could go the route of John Travolta and Hairspray and do a drag version of Merida at Carrot Top. Yes, <laughs> and the mom just does not understand, and so they need to be turned into bears so they can understand each other. And wow, that's that's a whole lot of layers there. But mm. anyways, yeah, my answer is Syndrome from The Incredibles, because I think Carrot Top would like make the ultimate use of that role and would just be over the top. And even his hair could do like that sticky up thing that Syndrome has got going on. And I feel like he would have a lot of fun with that. I picked uh, Cusco. I think he could be Cusco and in uh, a, a live action Emperor's New Groove. Hmm. He's yeah. got a little bit of that, that sarcasm that uh, that's needed for that role. Yeah, I just feel like a little bit goes a long way. And if he's going to be the lead character, I think it's going to go too long of a way. That's true. But I would watch it. Yeah. Um, my other thought for that would be like Nick on uh, Zootopia. He could be like the... Now, I don't know if you could ever cast Carrot Top as like a leading man, but uh, that might be the closest you get. And then there's the there's the irony of uh, a Judy Hopps and Carrots and Carrot Top. See? Oh, so many people would catch that. That's right. All right, our next uh, our next actor. This is hard. This one was a hard one for me because he's already the voice of an animated character uh, in Ice Age, you know, which is a non Disney property. So I I had a hard time like breaking away from that thought of that's who the kind of character this person should play. But Ray Romano, Ray Romano is the next person. Raymond, uh, that we have to have to uh, 
podcast, so Ray Ramon. Brad Garrett, the voice of Eeyore and Gusto. And the uh, um uh and the snuggly duckling, the the one of the Oh yeah. Hooked hand guy. He he and John Goodman are like the voice of uh-huh. Disney animation post Renaissance. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so Ray Romano, this was thinking outside the box a little bit. But you know, Ray Romano in the later years of his career has sort of branched into dramatic roles. But also keeping like that sort of darkly funny side of him, like kind of cracking self-deprecating jokes sort of. I would like to see him be challenged and play the role of Geppetto in Pinocchio. I feel like you need to give him another 10 years to be old enough for that role. But I could see him having like a soft spot and kind of like the loner who invents things and builds clocks and just wants companionship with a son, you know? Like I could, I think he could carry that pretty well, actually. If Drew Carey can play that role, Ray Romano can play that role. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I think Ray Romano could do better. If we're reinventing the character, uh, you know, in the, in the live action uh, world, I, I I could see Ray Romano as uh, Scuttle from The Little Mermaid. I was on, uh, and I were on um, Journey to the Little Mermaid today at Magic Kingdom. I was like, you know what? I would love to hear Ray Romano narrate this mediocre attraction, you know? <laughs> And he's like, and they all live happily. You know how that? I forget that. That was terrible. What's that, Yoda? No. That, <laughs> I don't know. I, I had something in my throat, but um. Anyway, you know how his voice is. Uh, you know, they all lived happily ever after. Whatever. You know, I'd like to hear Ray Romano do that. You know. So uh, I feel like I just did. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I can see that scuttle. Yeah. Um, all right, stay with me here. Oh, boy. <laughs> My initial, when I say this, you're going to be like, no. But think about if they were doing an actual live action version of this film, they would, and the tone was maybe a little different. He could be goofy in a goofy movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the uncool dad kind of goofy, kind of embarrassing with the corny jokes, feeling inadequate, which is pretty much his whole sitcom, if you've ever seen that. Right. If the whole tone of the movie kind of shifted to fit that, I think you're right. I could see that. And and it kind of makes me wonder why they haven't, like, tried to like, not call it a goofy movie, but take that general storyline and try to make that into a live-action film. I think that would be really good, actually. Yeah. Um, Brad Garrett could play Pete. Oh my gosh, yes! <laughs> Brad Garrett. Under your thumb, Raymond. I always remember that from that movie when Pete's like, under your thumb. You know what I'm I talking about? I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I don't either. Oh, he's trying to, he's giving him advice because they're bowling in the RV. Evan and Pete's giving advice to Goofy about how to control Max, and he tells him, you gotta keep him under your thumb, Goof. Okay, uh, moving on now. Oh, this woman. Boy, you talk about not even deserving to be on the same list as a Carrot Top and Al Roker. But this woman, (laughs) Maggie Smith, Dame Maggie Smith, an accomplished career, but she's never been in a live action Disney film until now. Where are we putting her? Wait, 
Sister Act and Hook technically are Disney properties. Okay, then, all right, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Thank you. Um, I struggled with this so much because I love Maggie Smith, and I don't think there is a Disney character worthy of who she is now in her career. Like, she's a little old, <laughs> first of all, so you it's got to be someone really old, but also she's just like a legend. So this is so random. The only thing I could think of was the magic mirror, like a, a gender-swapped role of the magic mirror, just her British... Or, I don't know, is she Scottish? I think she's British. Oh. Anyway, that accent coming through very strong and powerful from the magic mirror. And I feel like the queen needs to hear from another woman. Like, if th if that were real life, the queen would have a woman mirror in her room, not a male mirror. I can honestly say I've never thought about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> he would talk to her and she'd be like, you don't, you're not the boss of me. And she'd be like, I'm naked, pervert. Get out of here. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm changing. <laughs> yep, but Maggie Smith could get away with it. So. Maggie Smith can see me naked. That's true. <laughs> Look, she can do whatever, whatever she wants. And so, not related to what you just said, Jeremy, but <laughs> uh, the roles that she plays... Um, in, in film is what I mean. Um, and so, uh, I'm going to, I have two, um, one I think is a little bit more comfortable. I think everybody would accept her. Maybe more people would accept her as the fairy godmother. I think, uh, I would love to hear her sing bippity boppity boo. Um, maybe a little edgier role here. Um, I would love to see her. You know, maybe step outside her comfort zone as Yzma from the Emperor's New Groove. Ah. Oh, my. <laughs> wow. A long way away from McGonagall. Yes. A little closer to the Dowager, the Dowager Countess, though. Yes. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Starring Maggie Smith and Carrot Top. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, I picked for her. This is gonna. This would be controversial. It would never happen in today's climate of of um. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Where like they cast white people in non-white roles. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Like colorblind casting. Yeah, yeah. This would never work because this is a white person going for a non-white role. But stay with me. Can't you see her as the grandmother in Mulan? Oh, yes, I could. I actually, my first thought was the grandmother in Moana, but for the same reason, I didn't pick that. Yeah, but I can just hear Maggie Smith being like, sign me up for the next war. <laughs> That's a great accent. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, that for sure. That'd be fun. Um, have you seen the trailers for this new movie, Tea with Dames? No, but it sounds like a movie catered to me. <laughs> Jeremy, so it is her and Judy Dench. Hello, voice of Spaceship Earth. So now we're at two Disney tie-ins. And then I don't know her name, but the woman who plays uh, Mr. Wilson's wife in Dennis the Menace. Oh, wow, yes. And then a fourth person that I'm blanking She's on. She's still alive? Yeah, they all are. There's a fourth woman that I forget who it is. I know I know her. I just, I'm just i just blanking on who it was. But they're all sitting around the table, and they're talking to each other about their careers. So it's sort of like a documentary, but it uses like clips and stuff, and they're just sitting around drinking tea. 
and it looks so funny and so insightful, and I hope it plays in Nashville. I've got to see this. That sounds like an amazing way to spend an afternoon. And if one of the questions is not, tell us about narrating Spaceship Earth, (laughs) I'm not going to be very happy. Or your time on Dennis the Menace, the height of your career, man. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's literally the only thing I know her from. I used to love that movie as a kid. Me too. Me too. What you eating there, sport? A apple. <laughs> Christopher Lloyd. I forgot he was in that. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Hmm. All right. Uh, moving on. We got off topic there, but in a good way. Oh, my gosh. Speaking of movies from my childhood. Did you ever watch? What is it? it was, now, I always say this wrong. Is it Kazam or is it Shazam? With a K. Kazam starring the one and only Shaquille O'Neal. Saw it in theaters. You saw it in theaters? I don't remember seeing it in theaters, but uh, wow. Bigger (laughs) fan than I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. My sister and I went. Wow. But that was a good movie. And I just remember the one thing I remember was when he wished for cheeseburgers and it kind of like rained down cheeseburgers everywhere. And then even as a kid, I was like, how impractical. Like, what kind of wish is that? And and delivery-wise. Anyways, uh, Shaquille O'Neal. How are we going to put Shaquille O'Neal into a Disney live-action film? I think, first of all, you should please don't put Shaq in any Disney films. <laughs> but if you do, <laughs> cast him as all seven dwarfs. Sort of like a clumps, a nutty professor <laughs> type situation. Or like, uh, like, like, uh, like the Johnny Depp, uh, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with the Oompa Loompas. Yep, yep. And he can, but it's ironic because he's so tall. But obviously, they'll use CGI to make him short, and he'll be grumpy, talking to himself as happy, talking to himself as dopey. Listen, that would be awful. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> brilliant at the same time. <laughs> like, really, that yep. would be brilliant. Yep. It sounds like a Saturday night, a Saturday Night Live sketch, but either way, I'd watch it. I would cast Shaq as Pacha from The Emperor's New Groove. Um, it's not just his, his, you know, large size. It's that's pretty much it, actually. It's, <laughs> it's <laughs> well, nothing he's to do with acting genteel. abilities. Yeah, I mean, he seems like a nice guy, and Pacha's a great character, great, great companion. So, well, it's funny you say it because I actually had Pacha as well, but I had a backup that I was actually going to okay. say as well. Um, stay with me on this here. But thinking about his size, what if he was Baymax in a Big Hero 6 sort of live-action version? No. I'm Baymax. I'm your personal healthcare companion. I mean, he would have, like, the robotic voice going for him, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, like, can't you see? And then, you know, because he was kind of an action star there for a little bit because he was in that, um, I think it was him, in that superhero film, uh, uh, Steel, was that what it was called? Yeah, Yeah. so he tried to be like an action star so he could do the fighting stuff. Is it motion capture? Is he going to be in the inflatable suit acting? I mean, or just the voice? I I was hoping just the (laughs) voice. but No, I'm I'm thinking, like, you got to have, like actually him maybe some cgi on him but like being baymax you know he's he's engulfing he's very larger than life he has that sort of uh quality to him but who knows okay um 
Jennifer Lawrence. Now, this is actually somebody I'm surprised has not made the crossover yet into a Disney film because she is a very in-demand actress, very popular at this time, has won some Oscars. Uh, two, right? At least, or one. I think just one, but she's been nominated a few times. All right, but so this is a very legitimate thing that could, could happen. Yeah, I like Jennifer Lawrence. I think she is sassy, uh, but also can bring a lot of heart to the role, which is why I think she would make a perfect Meg from Hercules. Was that your answer to oh. That was mine. Yeah. It'd be perfect. Yeah. Never crossed my radar. That is so brilliant. Yeah. I think that'd be fun to watch. And she can sing, right? I think she can sing. I don't know. I've never heard her sing. But, you know, they cast Emma Stone in La La Land. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just true. kidding. Just kidding. Well, listen, if Emma Watson can sing, anyone can sing. That's what I say. So <laughs> You are not wrong. Oh, or worse than that, if Pierce Brosnan can sing in Mamma Mia, anybody can sing. Uh, for those reasons of her being sweet and sassy, I said she could be Tinkerbell. Mm, yeah. Tinkerbell really has that... People love her. She has a lovable quality, apparently. But she's really kind of a witch at the she, at its core. She really yeah, is. When you watch... Peter Pan, yeah. Oh my gosh. When I watch that movie, I cannot stand Tinkerbell. Yeah, yeah but she, then, you know, she kind of... She became endearing, I guess, on the on the television specials, and people people rehabbed her character. Mm. It was Julia Roberts, I think. Yeah, that that too. All right, uh, again, someone who I'm surprised has never crossed the boundaries into the Disney realm. Someone that I had appointment viewing every Saturday night when I was a child in the '90s. I actually met this gentleman. What? Yes, my freshman year of college, you were not yet there. He was signing uh, books at the Lifeway. A big group of us all went. I have his book autographed. Never read it. <laughs> That's crazy. What's it called? I Oh, gosh, I couldn't tell you. I, I, I have it. It's in Missouri. It's not here at the moment. Huh. But uh, has been in lots of movies and, and TV shows as well. And that is the one and only Chuck Norris. Yeah, I picked Chuck Norris for Kronk in a movie we've already talked about numerous times. But kind of like the tough, built dummy, I could see him playing that role. And like whipping up some food in the kitchen. Watch your words, calling Chuck Norris a dummy. No, he's such a good actor that he could believably play a dummy. Ah, even though okay. it's far, far outside his character. True. Uh, wow, so we have... Uh, Carrot Top, Maggie Smith, <laughs> and Chuck Norris. <laughs> That's a trio right there. <laughs> He's an older gentleman now. Uh, I think he could uh, soften the edge a little bit and play Geppetto. Um, with, I mean, he could play a soft character um, who's as far as we know it in the animated classic, just a very sweet, simple character. You know, simple isn't bad, but still simple. But perhaps Chuck Norris could bring some of that, you know. I'm nodding. I, I'm with you. I'm nodding. I, I could see I'm this. Not, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating because I don't know if I'm with me, you know. Yeah. I think he'd have to play a little bit different. Like when Pinocchio becomes real, like he attacks him. Like, what is happening? 
and like karate chops him. And at the end, uh, he swallows Monstro. Monstro doesn't swallow him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, I put I put think that uh, Chuck Norris could do Mr. Incredible. And it would be like right down his alley. Because, you know, Mr. Credible is a little older. Maybe, you know, the, 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 the baby is a little much. But, you know, men are having children in their 70s now. Uh, so, you know, he, he's, he's kicking butt and taking names. Okay, so next. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. This segment is eternal. Okay. <laughs> we have just a few more. Um, this person, again, uh, God be near us if this ever happens. But Paris Hilton, we have to uh, we have to cast Paris Hilton in a role. Um, this is the one I'm most proud of because it's perfect. If they do an Inside Out, she could play Disgust. Oh yes, right? Wow, with a little dog. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I was like, wait, there's a dog in Inside Out. No, but I'm saying she has a little dog. Yeah, just like always holds him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I just think she could pull that off well, and you don't necessarily need to be a great actress to just like play yourself, basically. Typecasting. Uh, mm-hmm. I cast her as uh, Anastasia Tremaine, one of the evil stepsisters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just... Also good. Yeah. Her and uh, what was it, Nikki? Uh... Nicole Richie. Nicole Richie. Nicole. I call her Nikki. Friends call her Nikki. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, Nikki Richie. They could look at Cinderella and be like, "Where'd you get that dress?" Walmart and Paris Hilton <laughs> could be like, "What's Walmart?" <laughs> um, stay with me on this. <laughs> oh my gosh, this, this is every answer comes with this qualifier. <laughs> well, because I was watching this movie, uh, we watched this movie last week because it's a Halloween movie; it's not a Christmas movie. Mm. And this character, people like her, but she's kind of weird, and that's Sally, and. She's kind of an airhead. Like I know she's like in like like people love her and she has some charm to her, which Paris Hilton kind of lacks. But I think that like ditziness Paris could bring to that role. Yeah, I can see that. All right, next one, uh, Melissa McCarthy, very hot actress right now. You know, well, was kind of her last few films have bombed pretty hard, but um, I have a feeling. At least two of us have the same answer for this. Jeremy, you go first. Well, I have two answers. So <laughs> I'll go first. Okay. Uh, Mushu. <laughs> That's not one of them. Absolutely not even on my radar. <laughs> That's amazing. Mushu. Big personality. Wisecracking. You know. Say that to my face, you lip noodle. It's not on your fan. Okay. All right. My answer is Ursula. Oh. Oh, I thought that would be your answer. And I want to be clear this has nothing to do with size. I just (laughs) Uh was thinking she would have so much fun playing a Disney villain. And my two options were Queen of Hearts and Ursula. Queen of Hearts has obviously already been done. So I think Melissa McCarthy would be a hoot as Ursula because she's a very playful villain, you know, and I think she would she would kill it. Well, now I have three answers because I also think Madame Mim, she could do that role. I had that written down as well. Yeah. Um, So my one answer, which to me seemed the most obvious 
and just almost too on the nose for Melissa McCarthy, and that is the mom in Monsters University. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, she has one of the best lines in that film. That film, I like that film. I know people hate on it, but when she's like, drops them off so they can go sneak into Monsters, Inc., and she's like, I'm just going to be sitting here listening to my tunes, and she turns on the radio and it's the screamo. Like, that is awesome. That's such a good, good joke. Anyways, um, the other one, Stay with me. If they redid this and and kind of gender bend it, she could be Rhino in Bolt. Oh, it's been a it's been ten years since I've seen that. So, <laughs> well, the hamster, you know, he's got like the physical comedy. Okay. Um, he's you know he's kind of cute and 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 plump, and and Melissa McCarthy is kind of cute and plump. <laughs> Okay, uh, last one. This one, we figured we, we'd end on uh, on the Grand Poobah here. And that is uh, George Clooney. Uh, the greatest Batman, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> cricket, cricket. <laughs> uh, George Clooney, never been in a Disney film that I'm aware of. Tomorrowland. Uh, Tomorrowland, ooh, very true. And he also guested on an episode of Golden Girls. So, mm. in the Disney universe there. Yeah, uh, give it like 15 years. But I could see him playing Carl Fredrickson. Like, he could easily be the intimidating old man that you don't really want to cross and then become like the charming George Clooney everyone knows who can win you over by the end of the movie. It's funny you say that because that kind of tags with my answer except the opposite. And I said he could play Clayton if they ever did a live-action Tarzan. Whoa. I like like the schmoozy womanizer who ends up being just a flat out villain. Yeah. Like, like he, he's really sleazy and the audience can see it, but because of his charm and good looks, people in the film don't really see it. I like that. Uh, I chose Roger, uh, Roger Radcliffe um, from 101 Dalmatians, Pongo's owner, uh, which is, I guess a more understated role, but I could just see him sitting at the piano and, and, you know, singing Corel DeVille. Uh, to me, that's always going to be Jeff Daniels. I was about to say, who played him in the movie? Jeff yeah. Daniels. Yeah. I would never. Yeah. I wouldn't have cast him. No. Jeff Daniels. Let's just give him some credit. The range that that yes. man has. He is very yes. I mean, in the '90s alone, he played everything from Dumb and Dumber to Arachnophobia to Pleasantville. Pleasantville. There you go. Just a favorites. wide range. All right, well, we casted, is that the word? We cast that celebrity. That's right. Hopefully Disney's not listening. (laughs) Amen. On to 
On today's episode, we're going to do a sort of part two of a series we started back on episode 176, and we talked about some of the backstories that are tied to Disney attractions. So we went through things like Haunted Mansion and Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, and we talked about these stories that the Imagineers have created that you, the writer, become a part of when you experience these things. And at the time, we I think we really enjoyed it, and we got some good feedback, and we always said that we would do a part two and like return to other attractions that we didn't mention, but we kind of forgot about it. But there are two things that happened very recently that brought this back to my mind, and so we're going to return to it this week and talk about other backstories for other things in Walt Disney World. And those two things... The first one, Jonathan, you were actually there for when we ate at Ale and Compass as we were leaving. Our server explained to us the story that all of the cast members are given when they start working at Ale and Compass. And you can help me fill in some of the holes because I don't remember all of it. But she was saying that the restaurant basically represents a lighthouse, which is like a beacon of safety for people in a storm. And... Outside the restaurant is the pool bar, which is called Hurricane Hannah's, which represents the hurricane, basically. And then Ale and Compass represents, like, this place of safety. And when you look at the the pictures on the wall, it's just framed photographs of, like, the sea, basically, or boats on the sea. And as you get closer to the window, the pictures become like stormier so the waves are higher or you can tell the wind is blowing harder and then the closer you get or the farther away you get from the windows and further into the restaurant the the waves become calmer and it's just representing the fact that you've now entered the lighthouse and you've found safety from the hurricane i thought that was very interesting yeah it was super cool yeah do you feel like it's conveyed well though to the average everyday guest it was a little confused. I thought I was a little lost for a second when she was kind of explaining. Um, but then when you kind of like take a look around the the different pictures and it's like, um, yeah, closer to the window, the waves are more intense. And then when you look back towards the kitchen, you know, it's more calmer water. It, it was cool. But at first I was a little confused. Right. It's not going to be something you pick up on. I mean, I that was my third or fourth time dining there, and I had never picked up on it. But it's something that when they tell you that, you absolutely believe it because everything fits what they're saying, if that makes sense. Um, so that was the first thing that made me remember like this whole backstory uh, series we started. Uh, the second thing actually came from a listener, and this is going to be number one on our list. It's Memento Mori in the Magic Kingdom, which is that uh, store just outside Haunted Mansion that is all Haunted Mansion-themed merchandise inside. And we got this email from listener Kyle, who says, Hello, Mad Chatters. I'm emailing you because I have a piece of information you might be interested in. First, I want to thank you for all the work you do to produce such a wonderful and enjoyable show. I am currently in the process of moving, and listening to the show has allowed me to find the magic during this stressful time in my life. Speaking of finding magic, while cleaning out my closet, I came across a box of items I kept from my time in the 2015 Disney College program. One of these items is something I thought you might be interested in. As a merchandise cast member, I had the opportunity to pick up a shift at almost any merchandise location on property outside my assigned location. One of these shifts was at the Haunted Mansion gift shop, Memento Mori. Upon starting my shift, I was given a pamphlet explaining the backstory of the store and what my role was going to be. 
According to Disney, the store was once owned by Madame Leota, which is why there is a portrait of her as she appeared in her, in her corruptible mortal state on the wall. Unlike the cast members in the attraction, the shop staff are not creepy or sulky. They are friend, <laughs> excuse me, they are friendly and optimistically awaiting the return of Madame Leota. The store's name also betrays an aura of foreboding. The phrase memento mori is Latin for remember death. The phrase may relate to the fact that you can buy items that remind you of those who have passed away and now reside in the Haunted Mansion, but I like to think it means something deeper. According to the internet, Memento Mori, Remember Death, was a medieval phrase used by the church to reflect the importance of living a Christian lifestyle because you won't live forever and Judgment Day is coming. In other words, Memento Mori more accurately translates, Remember One Day You Will Die. And then he goes on to talk about the lenticular photographs you can have taken inside the store. And they kind of help support that whole story about remember death because they make you look like a corpse, reminding you that you too will die. So anyway, I just thought that was kind of fascinating. He, he sent a PDF of the pamphlet, which includes a layout of the store. It includes some suggested phrases to say to people like whether they're entering or whether they're buying something it's like haunted mansion type phrases to say to them and then this backstory is written there it says rumors have been whispered for years about the little shop that once was the abode of madame leota leota disappeared many years ago though it has been said her visage appears now and then or her voice carried on the breeze is sometimes heard humming a mournful tune the people who work in the shop never betray what they really know about her disappearance, but only mention that she has, quote, moved along. Uh, many of her belongings are still in the shop, and the current storekeepers are careful to never move them. That is all very interesting. Who would have thought that a theme park shop would carry so much philosophy and theology <laughs> with it i, I mean it. wow and who would have thought that madame leota was a type of christ like a like a she's coming again <laughs> yeah yeah that's true that's true mm. yeah but honestly like i didn't know any of that either but that's the reason why we do those episodes because pretty much everything at walt disney world does have one of these fictional backstories but a lot of them you will never know unless you look deeper or are just flat out told by someone in the company yeah, unless you were in the college program, apparently. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, this pamphlet, bless it, had so many grammatical errors. It was <laughs> it was rough to read, but at least they tried. Um, so now, uh, you know, Memento Mori, I do remember that that was something that was done years ago. Like, you would take a picture. They used to take pictures of dead bodies, and families would keep those photos. Like, a lot of those, like, old Civil War time photos, like, those were dead bodies that were propped up to do that so i i thought i kind of remembered that there was something to do with that as far as the death of and remembrance and, and charms but to go even deeper that it's madame leota's shop i was not familiar with that yeah i i didn't know she had a connection and it talked about that portrait on the wall but i've never even noticed that yeah i have to look for that next time of course there's always about fifty thousand people in that shop every time <laughs> i try to go through so yeah it's a good place to escape the heat um anyway so thank you to kyle for sharing that with us and for kicking off this episode. All right, so Jonathan, where are we headed to next? We'll head over to Frontierland to the Country Bear Jamboree. Um, the story there is that uh, Ursus, 
H. Bear has awoken from a long and restful hibernation and uh, hosts a big celebration with his, uh, I guess, musically inclined friends. Um, and so we're guests there at Grizzly Hall. Um, we've been invited to join in on the celebration. And among many other bears, we have Henry, the master of ceremonies, Trixie, the Tampa temptation, uh, the sunbonnets, <laughs> and of course, Big Al. So as we all know, these bears cover classic country tunes in an over-the-top and, and ridiculous and fun way. Um, but it seems like the story, the backstory there is not as detailed. Uh, and, and just a side note, I think Disney has gotten more and more detailed and layered with their storytelling, like a, a store. I don't know if like 1955 Disneyland, we would have gotten that kind of backstory. And so now I think, and I don't know what it is, if it's they, they feel like they need to justify a change or something like that. Or I mean, I, I appreciate it because it's, it's, you know, hidden in the details, but it is interesting that Country Bear Jamboree, there's not much more to find than just bears waking up from hibernation and celebrating and we're there to witness it. So, yeah, I guess I just, I found it fascinating that each bear had his own backstory. That was something I was not aware of until doing some research on this. And I, I, they said that the reason that they don't really advertise those backstories so much is because eventually it opened in Disneyland as well, a couple years later. And all of these were very much like based on bears who eventually migrated to Florida. It was like a Miami, Miami. Yeah. 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 The Tampa temptation, Miami, something, a lot of them had come from like, the Midwest or the South and had gone to Florida to start this band. So if you, when you tell those stories and now they're bears from California, it's like, okay, well, which Henry are we talking about? So I understand. But in the original story, yeah, they had all these backstories for the characters. See, I love that. I, I think that that's so brilliant. Instead of just having these audio animatronic bears, when you kind of make their own little universe, it just makes it so much more interesting to me. Yeah, which is honestly why the movie made a lot of sense on paper. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, truth be told, I, I like that movie. I, I enjoyed it. Okay, I still haven't seen it. Um, you saw The Muppets, right? Yeah, I knew that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> I, I preach that every time. It's the same movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my favorite two backstories, um, based on the article I read, was The Five Bear Rugs began playing music together when they were in first grade. 15 years later, they were still playing in fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also learned that the sunbonnets, those three sunbonnets, study their lessons backstage between shows, and all the cast helps them with their homework, but they still get good grades anyway. <laughs> uh, very hokey, but it's, it's charming. <laughs> it's charming. It is. Oh, and Big Al has been playing his guitar since he was a child, but it's become more difficult because he has gotten bigger, but his guitar has not. <laughs> Good stuff. It's very nice. Yeah, you need to see that movie and then review it on the show. I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. I got a feeling you're going to hate it, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on I it. I should watch all of them because there's also, I guess it's more based on the book than the ride, but that Mr. Toad something yeah. something. I've heard bad things about that. It was like a, from like the 70s, right? What? I thought it was the 90s. Like a live-action Mr. Toad? I mean, I'm pretty sure it has what's-his-face from Journey into Imagination, right? Uh, Eric Idle? Yeah. Am I remembering this wrong? No, you're, you're, you're remembering it right. I'm not sure if it's Eric Idle, but... 
Yeah, yep, it is. Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, nineteen ninety six. You're right. It's just the the art is uh, the the like the poster movie poster is animated or, or drawn, so it looks older to me than what it actually is. Wow, it really is called Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. No wonder I connect it with the attraction. It has like the whole um, Monty Python crew in it. Gotcha. Because it's got yeah. John Cleese and then Stephen Fry's in it as well. Mm-hmm. So I'll watch all these terrible movies back to back to back. <laughs> I haven't even seen Haunted Mansion all the way through. Oh, oh my gosh! Yes, you need to watch. You need to watch Haunted Mansion. You need to watch Country Bears. Have you seen Mission to Mars or whatever that is that Mission Space is based off of? No. I feel like I saw it a long time ago, but maybe you can skip that one. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay, next we're going to go over to Fantasyland, and we're going to look at Pinocchio Village House. Now, this one's interesting because when you look at Fantasyland, not new Fantasyland, but old Fantasyland, it's modeled after a, a medieval fair, if you would. Um, kind of has this sort of feel that there's tents posted, you know, popped up all around. And then smack dab in the middle of that, you have this Bavarian-styled house. Very strange indeed. But that is where Pinocchio Village House is. And of course, Pinocchio, the Disney version, is an Italian tale stylized like Bavaria, Germany. Uh, and has even the, 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 the music and everything accompanied to it, which I don't know if they... I, I think I remember hearing something about this on the DVD as far as like... The one, the guy they hired to do the kind of storyboard of it was of German heritage, and he just wanted to do it as a German tale. And I guess Walt and everybody was like, oh, okay, <laughs> and they just went with it. So fascinating. But the village house there has always been a, a, a subject of debate and even mockery towards me on this show because of things that I've read on the internet dealing with the story of what exactly is happening inside uh, of this restaurant. Particularly the room, the large dining room, that is uh, dedicated to Stromboli, if I'm not mistaken. And the tale is that it is uh, set up for a puppet show. Because if you look up to the rafters, it is a a, almost two-story building on the inside, if not all the way up there. But there is a, a catwalk above you. And so the story is that that's where the puppeteers would stand. And then they would perform their their puppeteer marionette shows for the children below. And this has been supported. Because if you look in that room, on the windows around, uh, there is uh, marionettes detailed on the windows. And in the art that surrounds the building. Or surrounds that room, at least. Um, the other side of that is that some people say no it has nothing to do with a puppet's you know puppetry kind of a thing it has everything to do with it's a tavern and it's a place for people to come and drink and that's evident by the steins that are all displayed in that room as well so my thing is why can't you have both i've been to a great bar where they do puppet shows oh wow <laughs> that's not that true yeah okay we're going to get to something a little bit later that i find less believable but the more i read about this i'm kind of with you because it is the stromboli room and Stromboli was the owner of the puppet show. And straight up written on the wall in that room says, Stromboli presents Pinocchio the Stringless Puppet. So I can kind of buy that the catwalk was intended to be where the puppeteers do their thing. Now, the only thing that this uh, 
research that we've done did not support is the one thing that I've been mocked over. And that is that the windows that look into It's a Small World from that restaurant are supposed to represent uh, Cleo's Cleo? Yeah, Figaro's a cat. Uh, Figaro <laughs> is a cat, <laughs> which is also on the wall. But it's supposed to represent her, her uh, goldfish bowl, that you are kind of in the goldfish bowl looking out into the world. Um, there's no support for that that I found. <laughs> well, no. In fact, each room is themed to a different character, which I didn't realize. But each separate room has that character, like, on the wall. And that room with the windows is the monstro room. The monstro room. So. So, no. Yeah. But, no, the Cleo room has stained glass windows. Like, so all the other rooms have those words. Like you said, Figaro is a cat or the Stromboli words, all of them have like little words that kind of tell the story. But the Cleo room has stained glass windows, which make it appear like sort of watery, shimmery. Yeah, yeah, like it's um, like it's not clear. Like if you when you're underwater and things are distorted, if you would. Yeah, exactly. Which I like. I think that's a that's a nice little touch there. You know that you they add. So, anyways, if, if you're telling the story that it's a fishbowl, um that I have propagated for many years. I apologize. Yes, yes. Um, One thing I've never noticed about that restaurant is that the outside of it is made to look like two or three different buildings. Like, have you noticed this? Like, it's a really big restaurant. You know, I I saw, I never noticed it till I was reading this this article that you sent me over. And uh, yeah, that is interesting. and, And you don't realize how gigantic it is till you kind of stop and think about it. Yeah, so like different colored shingles, divide the different sections and i think they're all supposed to look like little businesses that people would own in a little village because it's called pinocchio village house and so it's like a little village with all these different buildings and the owners probably live above their little stores and then there's the fountain out front that when you're walking in you pass by and that's like the little town square or the little uh village square i guess where the fountain would be with the bell tower and everything yeah exactly so it's like a little quaint European village all wrapped up in this one restaurant. Right there in the middle of a medieval fair. Who knew? <laughs> it's also confusing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's fantasy land. So it's a fantasy. Just go with it. Mm, agreed. All right. Well, while, we're ta- while we are talking about restaurants in the Magic Kingdom, let's go over to the Skipper Canteen, which is, I think, the newest restaurant in Magic Kingdom, even newer than Be Our Guest. Buckle in. For this one because this <laughs> has a story and I love it so much and I know a lot of like really big Disney fans have just obsessed over this story and have looked for all the details in all the parks worldwide not just Walt Disney World but I love the story so much so I'm going to tr- do my best to to explain this so it starts sort of with the Adventurers Club which if you remember was a nightclub in Pleasure Island back when Downtown Disney was Downtown Disney. And this nightclub was styled after a private club that world travelers and explorers could pop in for a drink. And it was set in the year 1937. And this was one of like the first really interactive places that Walt Disney World had. Like there were puppeteers and there were live improvisational actors and animatronics and they all carried this theme. It kind of reminds me of what Star Wars Land is going to be like. Like, they all carried this theme that once you walk in, you were a traveler in 1937 going to this nightclub. And also, I believe Joe Rohde was one of the original 
people to help create this Kungaloosh. Right, which makes so much sense, right? Like, this is totally his thing. So, in the late 2000s, it closed when all of Pleasure Island closed, I think. And a lot of the props that were inside were sent to Hong Kong Disneyland. Okay, so put a little pin in that for now, and I'm going to come back to it. So, meanwhile, over in Tokyo Disney Sea, Tokyo Disney Sea opened in 2001. And there's that big volcano that you've probably seen in pictures. And part of that area, there's an attraction called Fortress Explorations. And it's just a walkthrough experience. Um, but guests are told that if they solve a series of challenges, they can join what's called the Society of Explorers and Adventurers, acronym SEA. And that's really the first time we ever saw that phrase, the SEA, the Society of Explorers and Adventurers. And in this attraction at Tokyo Disney Sea, there are maps around the area that explain what the SEA is. And here is the quote on one of those maps. The mission of the Society of Explorers and Adventurers is to collect, conserve, and curate valuable cultural and artistic artifacts from around the world and make them available to the public in an artistically pleasing and sensitive, sensitive manner. Which to me kind of sounds like a bad English translation of a Japanese uh, phrase. But there you are. Their mission is to collect these valuable artifacts. Artifacts from around the world. So, let me go back to Hong Kong for a second. When Hong Kong Disneyland opened a little bit later... Imagineers loved this idea of the Society of Explorers and Adventurers, and so they decided to continue that with one of their attractions, Mystic Manor. Now, Mystic Manor features, it's sort of like their uh, haunted mansion, and it features the character Henry Mystic. And when they opened Hong Kong Disneyland, the Imagineers created the story that, okay, what, what if Henry Mystic was one of those society members of the SEA? And... Nearby that ride is a restaurant called the Explorer's Club, and it continues Henry Mystic's story by displaying some of the artifacts he collected, because as we know, members of the SEA collect artifacts. And that's where the Adventurer's Club comes in, because some of those artifacts were actually taken from the Adventurer's Club restaurant when it closed. And so now that they've opened this, they sort of tied in retroactively the Adventurers Club. Like, even though when the Adventurers Club was open, it had nothing to do with the SEA. Now they're saying, oh, actually, by the way, the Adventurers Club was a branch of the SEA. So now they've tied together the Adventurers Club with Mystic Manor by saying they were both branches of the SEA. Now, also in Mystic Manor, in the lobby, or like the, the queue, there's a room that has portraits of other SEA members. And one of the members is Henry, Hi or uh, excuse me, Harrison Hightower. Now, when you go back to Tokyo Disney Sea, their version of Tower of Terror is based on the Hightower Hotel, Hotel Hightower, owned by Harrison Hightower. So again, even though when that attraction opened, it had nothing to do with the SEA. Now, all of a sudden, the Hong Kong Imagineers are saying, actually, Harrison Hightower, he was also a member of the SEA. Because the story of that Tower of Terror is that he collected treasures, like the SEA members do, and one of those treasures, unfortunately, was a cursed idol, which resulted in the, the entire hotel being cursed. 
So it, it actually kind of makes sense that he would be a society member collecting artifacts, and now, oops, one of them was cursed, and now you ride the Tower of Terror. So you've got... Uh, so now you've got the Adventures Club, you've got Henry Mystic, and you've got Harrison Hightower. Um, if you remember last time we talked about Big Thunder Mountain and Barnabas, Barnabas Bullion, how he owned... Um, what did he do? <laughs> now I don't remember. He owned the mining company. Okay, yeah. He's also a member of the SEA, believe it or not. And you see little clues to that in the queue. Well, that brings us to Skipper Canteen. So you probably recognize the name Albert Falls. Yes, Dr. Falls. Yes. So the joke when you go under Schweitzer Falls is that it was named after the person who found it. And you think they're going to say Schweitzer, but the joke is Albert Falls. Uh Okay. So when Skipper Canteen opened, they sort of created the backstory that, oh, by the way, Albert Falls, it's not just a joke. He was a member of the SEA, the Society of Explorers and Adventurers. And he founded the Jungle Navigation Company, which provided cargo shipping to remote areas beginning in 1911. Now, his granddaughter, Alberta Falls, (laughs) was sent to live with him when she was eight. You know, he would go out on his little excursions, and during that time, she grew really close to the other skippers. And so when Albert died his granddaughter became president of the Jungle Navigation Company. And the cargo business was not doing so well, so she turned it into a tur- tourist destination, and she provided Jungle Cruise tours, which is what you ride when you ride Jungle Cruise. And she also turned the family home slash meeting place for the SEA into a restaurant so travelers could eat there. And that is what Skipper Canteen is. When you walk in, you do see a portrait of her grandfather, Albert Falls. And you see all the artifacts that, as a member of the SEA, he collected throughout the years. And my favorite fact is that this is the room I've dined in once before. One of the rooms is like their secret meeting room. And that's where the SEA used to meet. And you have to go through a little library to get there. And apparently at one time the library was closed and it was like a secret entrance. But now that she owns it and her grandfather's passed away, the library is just always open. And you can get to where the SEA used to meet. So (laughs) it's a long way to get there. But I love how now Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Magic Kingdom are all connected in that way. So, so it's 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 Albert Falls and 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 Bullion and what are the other ones? And Henry Mystic and Harrison Hightower. Gotcha. And then they all actually formed a school of witchcraft and wizardry. And they... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I think I've also heard that Jock Lindsay. When you go to that restaurant, I think the society emblem is on a bunch of stuff there. But I'm like. Okay, just because Disney owns the property, like is is Han Solo also a member of the SEA? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa! Calm down, it's Indiana Jones. <laughs> um, you know, I I like that though. I I like how they're not afraid to retroactively tell better stories. Right, as long as it makes sense. Because in this case, like it totally made sense that Harrison Hightower would be a member of that, even though he wasn't when they built that ride. And I and I also love how. 99% of the people who experience those attractions on any given day have no clue about it, but that storyline is still present and still relevant. Yeah. So next time you dine at Skipper Canteen, 
No, you're dining at a place where the SEA used to meet. All of those artifacts are things that Albert Falls collected. See, this is the. I think we could have a a, a a good film series based on this. Oh, that would be great for the Disney streaming service. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, or like a really cool television show series. You know, where they go around the world and you have these different quirky members of the SEA, almost similar to like. Uh, oh, what was that? Marvel's Marvel's Agents of Shield, where it's like. These are, and, and even in that, you could incorporate somebody like an Indiana Jones who's referenced but never seen. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, I love this idea. Yeah, it's like they branched off of, 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 of that universe. And I think it was founded in the 1500s, according to the story. So you could even like jump from century to century. Totally. Yeah, you get some backstory of how it founded, and yeah, I think there's a lot of potential there. We should go ahead and write that, cast it, because we're clearly really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie Smith has to be in it. Yeah, we should write up a. We should write up a little. What do they call that? Um, not a pilot, but when they do like a, uh, just a couple page <laughs> treatment. Treatment. There you go. Go ahead and write up a little treatment. Submit that to old, to old Bobby Iger. See what he says. Eric, you did great explaining that. <laughs> Thank you. I was really tracking with you the whole time. That was awesome. Okay, good. I was a little stressed about it because I know there are some diehard fans out there, but that's that's the gist of it as far as I know. I liked it, and I, you didn't lose me once, and that's amazing. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> uh, so moving over to Tomorrowland, um, the most popular place to eat is, of course, Cosmic Ray's Starlight Cafe which is presumably the first Earth restaurant franchise from outer space. So says Sunny Eclipse. Um, so guests, when they visit, they can order, receive their food from any of the three bays. That is B-A-Y-S bays. And, um, <laughs> also however, what Sunny calls his waitresses, though. <laughs> I knew, I knew so. <laughs> um, uh, of course... Um, over in the Starlight Lounge, that's where we find Sunny Eclipse, um, who's this strange-looking, incredibly talented alien. Um, he's accompanied by the invisible uh, space angels. He's visiting all the way from Unork City on the planet Zork, and he's the biggest little star in the galaxy. And he shows off his talents by playing on his uh, astro organ, and singing for patrons of Cosmic Rays. So go ahead, get in line, get your burger and fries, your chicken nuggets. Replace the fries with a little, you know, some some apple slices if you like. <laughs> some chocolate milk with I don't know. And then uh, oh, go to the toppings bar, of course, and then head over to the uh, Starlight Lounge and hang around for Sunny Eclipse's near thirty-minute set. It's it's so wonderful. Yeah, I love that so much work was put into like giving him a 30-minute set of all original songs. All and, original songs. And he's just like in this quick-service restaurant. You know what I saw online while I was taking a look into the, uh, the backstory here? Um, I, the, the, the voice actor's name is slipping me, but that he has never been to Walt Disney World to see Sunny Eclipse. What a shame. It's like Cal something? Ken? What if, what if, guys, we're full of good ideas on the show, by the way. Uh, what if we started 
the movement on the mad chatters here go fund me whatever we got to do to get him to come see sunny eclipse and we make a big deal out of it and yeah wouldn't that be amazing that, that would be amazing. Uh, amazing that's the word i was thinking oh my gosh i love that right, or that. pitch an idea to disney for the streaming service for al roker to play <laughs> i like it well you mentioned the apple slices uh <laughs> you can substitute those for those watching their milky weight uh, nope <laughs> i've been hanging on to that one since you said it uh also <laughs> n- another backstory more layers sunny eclipse the end of uh season one of our sea he is an explorer from outer space and it's a big reveal that his spaceship lands. I love it. Wait, that his spaceship lands. Well, Where? like you know, so like like it's you know, Doctor Bullion or whatever his name is is looking for something, and uh, all of a sudden a spaceship lands, and they're like, "What is that?" And all of a sudden the door opens, and there's Sunny Eclipse, and he says, "Hello, I'm from the SEA Galactic Chapter." Whoa, I like it. This this episode we're really I mean uh, <laughs> I I need to write these things down. Good thing we're recording. We are recording, right? <laughs> oh crap! Uh, yeah, I, we've talked about this a hundred times, but I do kind of love the original story that they had when they redid Tomorrowland in 1994. I love it so much. I do too. How it's like this kind of it's a city on Earth, but it's for intergalactic travel, which is why Space Mountain takes you to space, and then there's a convention center, and then this is just like the lounge that people can go to when they're hungry and need some entertainment. Yeah, it is nice. What's the name of that actor again? Cal something you said? Cal David. Cal David. Is he on the Twitter? We should reach out and just see. Hey, hey, Cal, you want to come? Do you want to come to Tomorrowland? We want to help you get to Tomorrowland. We'll give you a pen, and you can touch it, and you'll go to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow, we have literally never referenced that film once, and now we've done it twice on one episode. Mm, yeah. Who so else did potential. we reference earlier that we made the joke about? Oh, Octomom. Octomom, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, we're all over the map. <laughs> um, all right. I'm not seeing our dear Sunny Eclipse, Hal David, on Twitter. Maybe he doesn't want to go. Ooh. This makes the story even better. Like he's a curmudgeon locked up and we're going to change his heart and, and reveal like George he has Clooney a in Tomorrowland. Yes. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, moving on over to Storybook Circus. Now Storybook Circus opened with New Fantasyland in 2012 or thereabout. Mm-hmm. I don't, did it open when it, when, when it, it opened, opened officially? It, it opened in phases, like one half of Dumbo, and then it was Dum- Dumbo and Barnstormer. Like, they just... Yeah, just Dumbo's butt. Dumbo's butt. When... <laughs> that was such a terrible joke. Yeah, it's, it's all good. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Part of it did in December 2012. Uh, Derek is still laughing at his dad <laughs> joke, by the way. Because uh, he said half of Dumbo. <laughs> But uh, if you remember, the story was um, originally this was supposed to be Pixie Hollow 
and then that got canned and the circus came to town so the story is that it's this sort of old school uh, circus like what you would have seen in the 30s and 40s where the train pulls in and that's why there's a train stop in storybook circus and as well as a casey jr play area so there's there's kind of the train tie-in uh the train has brought the circus to town and included in that circus of course the highlight is dumbo the flying elephant and uh, his circus tent is set up there and you can fly with him but then the other stories there are the great goofini uh which is a roller coaster formerly the barnstormer but uh the great goofini he's not exactly the highlight of the circus he's sort of a b star and there's always a disaster that happens with his performance and that's what happens when you ride his attraction is that it goes haywire and out of control and uh, it's always a catastrophe in the most goofy way possible. The other side story that uh, I always thought was interesting that it's often overlooked and unfortunately has become more and more of a reality in recent times is that everything is run down by design, at least in like uh, the meet and greet area and in the gift shop, big top uh, souvenirs. And the reason for that is that the circus, as we find out, is run by Pete who is the uh, uh, antagonist to Mickey Mouse throughout all these years and Goofy in the Goofy movie. Um, but he is a cheapskate, and he's always pinching pennies. So if you look at the carpet, some of the stains are not supposed to be there, but it <laughs> almost gives like a tattered look to the corners. Everything is, is a little ripped in the corner, but it's ripped by design. Um, now, I've made comments that the outside looks terrible recently, like sun faded and just gross and i get that there's a theme going on but come on we can still casey jr <laughs> oh it has like mold yeah. like i oh no thank you but uh anyways that's what one of the things is that pete is too cheap to replace things so after you move up and pack into a new town it's uh it's gonna get damaged a little bit so you can kind of see those details uh particularly in those shops and then the other story is right there in the sidewalk as you walk the walkway there's the peanuts and the animal hoof prints and and the people's footprints and that's everybody walking into the circus and uh the circus atmosphere all around you yeah two details i had not noticed until this week a you know there's the actual train the railroad that goes around walt disney world but when you look at the tracks like when you're coming around the corner by the great goofini those tracks there are fake tracks that lead off to the left around Goofini and go all the way to where Casey Jr. Splash Station is. And it looks like the train was on the tracks and then took this side route and stopped on this turntable. Like when you look at the train, it's on a turntable, a fake turntable, which is what the train would be on at the end of its route. And I thought that I had never noticed that. I watched Shiny Time Station. I understand the concept. <laughs> yeah. So you'll see these fake tracks coming off the real tracks. And I thought that was so genius because Dumbo is so heavily centered on a train. And then you have this real train that you can take out. Anyway, little details like that. But also, when you board the real train, there's that sign above you as you go down the few steps. And it says Fantasyland Station. And just below it, it lists where you are. And it says Carrollwood Park. Which is what Walt called his little train. His models, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When he set up those trains in his backyard, he called that whole little area Carrollwood Park. So I don't really know 
if that's like a story or just a detail like is this whole area carolwood park and the circus has come to carolwood park i don't know but it's a great little nod i kind of like that idea though that that art has now infiltrated real life which was inspired by art yeah yeah it's very meta i'm smoking weed the listeners can't see that but i am (laughs) (laughs) yeah i love the details in in storybook circus i think that's like the underrated gem of maybe magic kingdom but certainly i think new fantasy land i mean i think be our guest got a lot of the hype and seven doors mind train of course but storybook circus is so charming and yeah i think it's they could Obviously, it's supposed to look run down in some places, but it could use, you know, paint job, especially Casey Jr. You know what they need? They need to put Ray Romano's face on Pete's face outside the meet and greet. Because didn't you cast or didn't you say that he should be Pete? Well, Jeremy? he was goofy. He was goofy. And the... oh, and then Brad Garrett was Pete. Brad That's Garrett, I'm yes. so sorry. Brad yeah. Garrett should be. Yeah. yeah. No, but um, I got into a debate actually once with, with Jeff DePauli because he said, why isn't Storybook Circus a separate land? It's not a part of Fantasyland. It doesn't fit. But I always liked the idea that you have this Fantasyland forest that over the decades will continue to grow and actually look more and more like a forest. And then I like the idea that there's kind of this like circus, like this almost like magical circus in the woods that you stumble upon that's hosted by like, you know, lovable and, you know, classic Disney characters like you just kind of stumble upon it and find it in this fantasy forest. I, I really like the idea of Storybook Circus. Also, the plot of this season's American Horror Story. Just stumble across a fantasy forest in the middle, or circus in the middle of the forest. Well, first of all, you're wrong. It should be its own land. Uh, but <laughs> since okay it's... But since it's not, I actually like your story much better. It's almost like a circus that only appears when... You, you aren't looking for it or something kind of like the uh, room of requirement in Harry Potter. If you know what that is, it's just like, yeah. you know, you have to walk by it three times and then it, it appears. And then during Halloween season, it becomes Mr. Dark's pandemonium carnival from something wicked. This way comes. Whoa. Wow. That is another reference. <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. Dark is part of the SEA. Um. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wow, it's all coming together. Okay, well, let me tell you who is not a part of the SEA yet. And that is Mama Melrose. (laughs) So we are leaving Magic Kingdom, but we're going to go to another restaurant. Mama Melrose's Ristorante Italiano. (laughs) And uh, we have been there once before. Didn't love it, but I would love to go back because I think it's probably better than I remember. But believe it or not, this restaurant has a story. And that story is there once was a young girl who lived in a Sicilian village in Italy, and she worked in her father's restaurant. She was obsessed with Hollywood and with movies, so at the age of 16, she sailed to America and found a career as basically a stand-in, an extra in movies. She enjoyed it, but of course was not a star. And while she waited with the other extras in between scenes, she would cook up these Italian dishes that she had learned from working in her father's restaurant. And she would add a little bit of California flavor to them. And she would share these meals with all of her actor friends. Well, she found much more success from cooking than she did acting. So her friends convinced her to open an Italian restaurant. And she opened it on the back lot. That way she could feed actors. 
she could feed the crew, the directors and stuff like that. And what, where did she put it? She put it in a warehouse that was used for storing film equipment. So when you look at the building, the outside looks like a quaint little restaurant, and that's because Hollywood wants to be able to use the exterior whenever they are trying to pretend like something takes place in Little Italy in New York. They can use the exterior of the restaurant for those shots. But then when you go in the restaurant, it's just filled with like all sorts of outrageous things that don't seem to have anything in common. But really, they do. Um, she tried to convert the interior as much as she could, but because she had little funds, the interior still has all of those exposed ducts that you see, the air ducts. It, you still see industrial light fixtures when you look up. Um, you see some brick walls that are covered with graffiti. The floors are all scratched because people have been moving equipment in and out of there for years because it's this old warehouse. So when you go in the restaurant, you still get a warehouse vibe. But then there are all these like little quaint details added that make it more inviting. And that's because she decorated with whatever she had available. So sometimes she just picked up some Hollywood memorabilia that she gathered during her years in the film business. Um, some of the things are actually from Italy that her family has sent her over the years. Or uh, friends in the film business sent her things that she could display in her restaurant. So it's basically just like this ac accumulation of all these knickknacks that she's gotten over the many, many years of living in Hollywood and Italy. And so that's what you see when you walk in Mama Melrose, this woman who sailed to America to become an actress, but instead opened a restaurant and now has just pretty much thrown up all of her junk <laughs> around this restaurant to make it more homey since it used to be an ugly warehouse. I love that, though, about, particularly about Hollywood Studios back in the day, how every restaurant was connected to this back lot in some way. Um, thinking about, like, s starring roles over there, which I think we've talked about or we are going to talk about um, at some point. But, yeah, every little thing had to be connected. Yeah. And apparently, I don't know this, um, but Melrose Avenue is a thing in Hollywood. Yeah, you're not familiar with that? I'm not. Huh. Um, but anyway, this this writer said that uh, this woman, who we don't know her real name, but her flamboyant approach to life re reminded all of the Hollywood people of Melrose Avenue, which is kind of eccentric. So they nicknamed her Mama Melrose. I think it, it's also connected to Melrose Place. Remember that show back in the day? Oh, okay. That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I like that whole section of the park, um, mostly because it still feels like the old park, um, kind of in the midst of the transition, other than like the music changing and the Muppet signage being different. I always find myself going back there because it just reminds me of old MGM. And, yeah, I agree. Yeah, the, the back lot. Theming. By the way, I was at Hollywood Studios last weekend and we saw Muppet Vision 3D with a half-filled audience who was cackling the whole time with laughter. And I was with people who had never seen it before, and they were laughing and enjoying it. And it just reminded me of how wonderful and timeless the Muppets truly are. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll head to the other side of the park now, um, heading over to the ominous Hollywood Tower Hotel. Um, so, of course, the setting, Hollywood, 1939. Uh, this is the golden age of Hollywood. Um, you know, it was a star in its own right, this hotel, a beacon for the show business elite. 
Um, and one stormy, fateful, uh, fateful night, not fateful. Um, <laughs> October 31st, 1939, five people stepped aboard an elevator. You have a famous actress and her admirer, a child star, like a Shirley Temple type, um, and her nanny, and a bellhop. And uh, lightning struck the hotel, and the elevator and its inhabitants instantly vanished. So the hotel guests and staff had no idea what really happened that night, and everyone left the hotel immediately, completely abandoned. Um, there's a billboard on Sunset Boulevard um, that, and and a, a plaque. No, it's actually the plaque at the uh, um, at the base of the hotel that tells us that it was built in 1917. So here it remains today, deteriorating at the end of Sunset Boulevard. But if people venture up through the gardens and into the lobby, uh, into the library, then um, they find a lost episode of The Twilight Zone. And this story of the Hollywood Tower Hotel is told to us by The Twilight Zone host, Rod Serling. And we're invited, if we dare, uh, (laughs) to step aboard the very same maintenance service elevator that the five uh, people stepped in back in 1939. So it's waiting for us, the uh, elevator, to take us to a Twilight Zone. Now, wait. They didn't ride the service elevator, right? I believe they did, because it says you're about to step into a service elevator similar to... Is a maintenance service elevator still in operation? I thought they took the regular elevator, which is now missing, and that's why when you look at the hotel from the outside, that whole section is gone. Oh, you're right. No, you're right. Oh, you're okay. And the elevator's out of order when you enter the queue. The, and it's the doors are smashed. You're so right. Okay. Because I think a lot of people, when they look at the building, you don't notice that literally an entire section of the hotel is missing. Right. Because you don't know what it used to look like. But if you look clearly, like it looks like something is gone. Right. Oh, well, and then in the oh, that's, film, that's too, a- it shows, you know, kind of when the lightning strikes, it blows into smithereens. Yeah. Or sent it to the Twilight Zone. Ooh. Exactly. Yeah. Or both. <laughs> Ooh. But yeah, the details in this, I mean, you can't rave about enough. Yeah. I took a picture of the fountain a few weeks ago when I was there. because just, I just kind of liked the lighting. And it was filled with water because it had rained. And I didn't realize till much later that I'm like, wait, that fountain's not supposed to have water in it. Because it's supposed to be dry and in disrepair. It's it's a it's a wonderful attraction that with so many layers and then it deserves an its own it deserves its own not movie because I don't think it would be great they if they could if they did like their yeah there is a movie it would be great if they could redo like an old actual Twilight Zone episode and kind of just make it feel seamless from the 1950s or 60s whenever that was on. Oh, they could totally do that. In fact, they're redoing Twilight Zone with Jordan Peele. They should just do that. <laughs> Did you guys see that? Yeah, the, but the I, want, I want Rod. I don't want Jordan. Oh, ouch. I mean, no offense to him, but if we're going to do it, let's do it, you know, properly. Sure, sure. Just bring back Mark Silverman, the voice of Rod Serling. And, that would be and great. Top. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, everything from at the end of the street. I mean, it has kind of the same effect, like they, you know, Imagineers talking about the long shot with the castle and the medium shot and then the close-up and everything. It's the same thing there. You see it and you hear the screams down the street. And as you get closer, obviously the screams get louder. The building gets bigger and you, it's, it's more and more ominous. And then the, 
I mean, my favorite part is the echoey 20s and 30s music that you hear in the queue. That's just, it's just perfect. I love, one of my favorite reveals talking about that, I love walking up the queue. And it's particularly if you're by yourself and, you know, as you're kind of, because it's an incline. So you're already feeling very small as you're walking up and the building just engulfs you. And then you're in the abandoned yard Kind of that from once you enter the gates to walking up to that fountain, to me, is one of the most impressive sight lines in all of Walt Disney World. Yeah, I think what makes the attraction even creepier is that you're not going back in time to 1939. Like you were visiting this hotel today, but it's creepy because it literally has not changed since 1939, which is why it's run down and the lobby has all those cobwebs. And so that to me is creepy, you know, like I hate what this is so stupid, but I hate when you visit famous people's homes, you know, and it's set up like they had it and you see like his hat on the hat rack like that creeps me out. <laughs> <laughs> like you're expecting Elvis to just walk in at any minute. <laughs> yeah. No. And that's why I think and I've, we've had this discussion before why Rock and Roller Coaster works in its location that it is, because in my mind, you're in Hollywood there's this modern rock studio that got cheap property next to this abandoned hotel next door. That's just the way it's always been played in my mind. Uh, thank you. That actually helps me appreciate it more. Yeah. It kind of falls apart when you kind of walk down the street and it's supposed to be 1920s Hollywood as you go the other direction. But, you know, for that end of the street, it works. Yeah. All right, speaking of Hollywood Studios, we're going to jet over to the other side of the park, and we're going to look at Star Tours. Now, Star Tours, of course, in its current state is in 2.0, but the overall storyline is kind of the same, at least uh, in a generalized sort of way. And that is um, Star Tours, the story takes place shortly after Return of the Jedi. So that's the setting. And I'm guessing it's pre-Force Awakens now, so sort of in that in-between time period there. And it's, it's kind of muddled, to be honest. A little bit. Yeah. Force Awakens kind of messed up Star Tours storylines. Um, because, well, which is interesting because Darth Vader's still alive <laughs> in, in this. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's set when the Empire is still in control. I thought it was between the new, the 2.0 Adventures Continue. I think that's between 3 and 4. That's why we get original trilogy and prequel stuff. Right, I think. Okay, right. but maybe maybe the first version of it was set post Return of the Jedi, because one of the things that I was reading says that R two D two and C three PO have new owners at this point, and they are now working for Star Tours, which is this sort of um, touristy, a commercial airline ish sort of uh operation that's happening in the galaxy so they're not you know they are spaceships but they're not in battle they're just transporting people and similar to the idea of like a hollywood tour bus and or the jungle cruise like those are the kind of things that inspired the idea uh, when it was going on paper but as you know like most Disney attractions, things go horribly wrong as you ride. You don't get a nice little simple tour of the galaxy, but you are actually smuggling a rebel. And so that's why I think, like you said, 2.0 deals well with that sort of uh, time. Because uh, the rebel alliance is strong. The Empire is still still in, in contact. 
and all the characters that you love are young and alive at the time. So they're uh, they're involved there. But I do like the idea too that you're, uh, and this was a thought out idea, at least in Star Wars or Star Wars, excuse me, the uh, first iteration, your captain or your driver is not some big strong honcho, if you would. It's not some massive droid that instills confidence, but it's actually a guy who's. Uh, a wreck in fact to the point that his name is rex uh he's a nervous rex and he it's my uh, first flight and i'm still getting used to my programming yeah so there's not much confidence in him and you sort of grow with him too as he uh endeavors on this great journey that you're you you end up finding yourself a part of but i actually love the storyline of the new one where like, I never get to see the whole pre-show because you're just kind of shoved in the line real quick and then the doors open. Like, they're trying to be as, fish- is as efficient as possible as opposed to maybe Dinosaur where you have to stay for the whole pre-show. But I, I love how... Like, first of all, the queue has that little section where it looks like your luggage is going through the x-ray. Yes. I think that's so genius because you're about to board, you know, this inter- intergalactic travel touring company... And so, of course, so you're, you're going to have to go through, through security and customs and all that. So I think that's so smart. And there are like little gags on the x-ray screen, you know, where it looks like your luggage has some sort of droid in it or something like that. But then when you watch the pre-show video, you see the ship you're about to board in the big hangar. And you see the pilot working on it. And then you see that C-3PO needs to make some repairs. So he gets up in the pilot seat. And then the pilot is called away real quick. So he leaves, and that's when the ship is like, all right, we're ready for takeoff. And so the ship comes up to where you are standing, and it looks like it connects right in front of you. And then, bam, the doors open, and wow, there the ship is, right there. And then when that screen comes down and C-3PO is sitting there, and he's freaking out because he's not a pilot. He's not supposed to be piloting the ship. Like, it all just fits so well to me, and I love that thought went into that, as it does for everything. Yeah, and I love the details inside the the cabin as well. How you look up and it has what feels like the plane with the AC blower and the the signage of fashion your seatbelt. Um, again, something that goes often over overlooked, but it really tells that story that oh, this is not this is not the Millennium Falcon where Falcon we're, uh, we're we're boarding. This is not you know the Death Star. This is just an airplane, you know, something that everyday people in the galaxy far, far away would would use to transport themselves to go see grandma. Yeah. Now, the rebel spy, was that added with this 2.0 version? Yes, it was not in the original version. So I guess the story is you are just taking normal transport. Right. And then Darth Vader starts to assume the worst because he thinks there's a rebel spy on board and that's when things go crazy. Or sometimes Kylo Ren. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's what in the world. Which, which by the way, so um, when the force awakens came out, they had that scene where you went to Jakku and that was in the mix of everything that was just randomized. Sometimes you got it. Sometimes you didn't, which was fun, but it also just was super confusing because I could be in at the pod race from the Phantom Menace, which was in the storyline decades and decades ago, to Darth Vader to The Force Awakens, all in the same thing. So it just didn't make any sense. Apparently, George Lucas said, with the, when when they were working on the new one, the timeline it doesn't matter. 
like continuity doesn't matter. They won't care because it's just fun. Like, and that, which is such a George Lucas thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> but then when the last Jedi came out, they had the scene from, from crate and that's what the ride has been for almost a year since last December, the force awakens, then the last Jedi scene. And then, uh, the scene for galaxy's edge, which was a super cool surprise. No, it, I just wrote it, and it, it was different. Yeah. Exactly. So up until and, – and so I noticed – I, like, found myself, you know, not really wanting to go back to Star Tours because it's like I've, I've done the new scene so many times, and that's just what it is now for an indefinite time. Well, I went last week, and I had prequel stuff again. What, do you know when they started randomizing it again? No, but we wrote it twice and had – two different scenes so i because yeah. i had heard that you know they were doing that so people could see the new scenes because i think a lot of people were showing up particularly when the new scenes came out just to try to see them so i'm not sure when it went back but and i know that the force awakens was that one scene for like a month so everyone could see the force awakens scene but then they've had just the new trilogy stuff and galaxy's edge for i mean i mean maybe it's june i mean it, it was for a long time and then i was shocked when you know, they randomized it again. But I appreciated that because it's, you know, there's so much more rewritability to it. Okay, so Batu is the planet that they've created for Galaxy's Edge, which is coming to Hollywood Studios next year. Does it still end there every time? No. Okay. I ended no, on- see, we, we ended yeah. in Naboo, you know, uh, which is my favorite ending when it breaks the windshield. Spoiler. Um, yeah, it's... It's fun. Now, the one thing that I didn't read that I wanted to bring up, because I know Matt has mentioned this, the original story for at least Star Tours 1.0, how it tied in with the studio's feel. Because the at-at or at-at or however you say it is only half. You know, you only see half of it. It's it's very much a, a movie prop or a movie facade um, and I'm, if I'm remembering right, they tied that in somehow that this wasn't actually Star Wars that you were entering, but it was the filming of Star Tours or Star Wars. There were director's chairs right when you walked in, and it was maybe like for C-3PO, and it doesn't make sense that there would be a director's chair for R2-D2, but I'm pretty sure at least C-3PO had like that chair, and the name was on it right as you walked in. And then it, you know, and so there was like, you know how Tatooine Traders, the store, has yeah. like... It, it looks like just a built set. You're kind of seeing like the backside of the set. That's what it looked like right when you walked in. And then as you started to go on the ramp, it was mostly what the queue looks like now. So you were entering the movie, if you would. Right. It was, a, I think it's a film set originally. And then you kind of walk in and at that point you're kind of immersed in, in the full story. Okay. Cause they've, they've gotten away with that, away from that, obviously that, and, and it's only going to, different more you know as 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 the star wars land opens and that's what just makes it more confusing now is that everything is polished it's not a movie set anymore other than that outdoor section of the queue and the half add at so it's just yeah they they almost need to shut that down and fix that and get rid of that at least but i love that forest of indoor right there yeah but you know i mean because the trees even are only half you know and then you get to the back half of them and you're like oh they didn't finish it, but it has the same feel to me like the mummy does over at Universal. How you're not actually riding the mummy, but you're on the set of the mummy, and that's what's happening. Right. 
Very interesting. You know, Jeremy, you mentioned Jungle Cruise. I'd never really tied those two together, but they really are the same kind of thing. Like on one, you're taking these paid excursions through the jungle, and on the other, you're taking these paid excursions through space. Yeah. Interesting. The backside of asteroid belts. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Albert Belt. <laughs> All right, let's leave Hollywood Studios for now. Let's go over to Animal Kingdom. This is probably the newest area we're going to talk about. And I think we probably talked about this some when the land first opened. But, Jonathan, like you said, Imagineers seem to be even more obsessed with making stories around everything now. And that is certainly the case with Pandora, the world of Avatar. So basically, um, if you've seen Avatar, then you know that... The RDA, the Resource Development Administration, set up shop on Pandora to try to mine it for all of its resources. They were the bad guys. They were killing Na'vi to get what they wanted. Basically Pocahontas, but on another planet. And Pandora is actually set about a decade after that has happened. So you still see a lot of the buildings that the RDA set up, but by now they have become overgrown. Nature has sort of overtaken them once again, has reclaimed the land for itself. Uh, one thing I find a little convenient is that, you know, they had to wear those those exopacks to provide them with oxygen because the atmosphere wasn't safe. Well, Pandora takes place in the Valley of Moara, and here the oxygen is safe. And that's because many of the plants you see all around you are working day and night to detoxify the air. So that is why humans can come here. And I'm guessing that's why you don't see Navi? I don't know why we don't see Navi. Because if we can breathe the air, then I guess the Navi wouldn't be able to. I don't know. I don't know. But then you ride the boat ride and they are there so well then also don't the navi like live in like a higher region as well if i remember right i don't know this does say the official website did say that this is where that clan lives that we saw in the first movie that jake sully or whatever his name was became part of so there are navi we just don't see them i guess anyway so now that 10 years have passed a group called the Alpha Centauri Expeditions, ACI, now they offer civilian trips to the area. So they are the people who are responsible for getting us there. So somehow we have signed up with the ACI. No, wait, ACE. I think it's just ACE, right? ACE. ACE. Oh. ACE. <laughs> Alpha Centauri Expeditions. Expedition starts with an E. Yes. So ACE. Ex Expeditions. <laughs> Expeditions. They have brought us here. So I, I do love the detail that when you cross over the bridge, the bridge was built by RDA, but now it's like rusting and it's got like plants overgrown. And I love that because it looks like it's been there for 10 years, but obviously they just built it last summer. Man, that was just last year. That feels like forever ago. Anyway, so you'll notice these RDA structures throughout the entire land. Like you see that mobility suit outside Pongu Pongu, but now it's sort of decorated with Navi... Uh, Navi made things. Um, you see, you walk through their old warehouse when you go through when you go through the queue for flight of passage. You go through this old building with like fluorescent lights and this big industrial looking door. But once again, it's all rusted. It looks like it's been there for a while, and that's because nature is reclaiming this area as its own. 
Um, I mean, that's pretty much the story. You're going to see a mixture of RDA, the old group, with ACE, ACE, <laughs> this new group. And you can kind of tell a difference because the A stuff looks new, shiny, and then the RDA stuff looks like it's been there for a decade because it has. Now, I have a question about this, too. So the woman that we see that wrote the book. Uh, she, Dr. Ogden, right? Ogden, okay. She is not... Um, what's her name in the movie, right? Sigourney Weaver. Correct. Thank you. Yeah, I think she's just the poor man's Sigourney Weaver for for the part. Right, so are you ready for one more acronym? Because there was the RDA... There's Ace, which is in charge of, like, getting you from Earth to Pandora. But then there's also the Pandora Cons- Conservation Initiative, which Dr. Ogden is in charge of. And what they're doing is gathering research on Banshees. So when you ride Flight of Passage, you're being linked to a pre-existing avatar so you can ride a Banshee and collect more information on these creatures. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) It's all very confusing, but it does work. For barely remembering the movie, it's a lot to remember. But you don't necessarily have to know all that. True. To understand what's going on. I just was very confused by, is this woman supposed to be Sigourney Weaver? Because she kind of looks like her, but Mm -hmm. she's not really. And then I was like, no, clearly that's not supposed to be because we're much after the time of Avatar. And if I remember correctly, she dies in Avatar. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. No, Joe Rody and the Imagineers took a lot of pride. Like, I read so many interviews where they talked about the fact that you don't have to see the movie. That's what's so great about Pandora is you can really get the whole story just by being there. And James Cameron was like, well, well, you you could at least see the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I I do love that cue for Flight of Passage. Absolutely one of the best cues Disney has done, in my opinion. And, yeah, you start in the caves outside... And then you go to the old RDA military installations, the rusting doors and all that. Then, you, then you're then you out in the jungle again, but you see all the pipes that are just overgrown. And you hear the creatures and you see the bioluminescence. And then you enter the Pandora Conservation Initiative where they're doing their research. And that's where the shiny you know, test tubes are. You see the big avatar in the tube, all of that. And then you go to your genetic matching lab where you're linked to an avatar it's all just told very well and then you uh uh fly (laughs) (laughs) you do indeed yeah i've grown to really like pandora i mean i think i was like visually blown away when i first went but the more i go back i I mean the detail is unbelievable and i do appreciate the story um blair's I love the transition in the queue from the natural space that we are into the caves as you kind of enter into their, you know, research facilities. I think that transition is pretty incredible. I'm really ready for Star Wars land to open so that way Pandora kind of thins out a little bit. Yeah. So moving over to uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom, uh, located at uh, the base of the Himalayas in the village of Anandapur in the Asia section of the park, uh, we have Yak and Yeti. Uh, so it was originally the home of one of the rich merchant families in Anandapur. Uh, Arjun, Arjun, Arjun uh, is the owner. But over the years, so he again, he was one of the richest merchants in, in the village, but over the years, his economic status has changed. He's also an empty, empty nester. Uh, his kids have moved away. 
So what does he do? Oh, this is such a sad story. It, it well, no, it, you know. I guess that happens. That's the circle of life. Sure. He, uh, so the kids move away. What does he do with that? He keeps the staff that he had around to serve the family's needs uh, and opens up his home as a restaurant and a hotel. So guests enter the lobby to check in. Um, and there you can see some luggage sitting in the lobby uh, as you walk in. Um, guests can, can dine on the first floor in the parlor and the patio, uh, look out to the streets and see, see guests traveling. Uh, and going on their way. And then upstairs, you can uh, dine in the veranda, the study, the library, the aviary, even a bedroom. Um, so each room is uniquely designed because originally this was a home. And now um, it serves as, you know, dual purpose of um, a restaurant and a hotel. So each room uniquely designed, even the light fixtures in the rooms are different. Uh, the chairs are mismatched. Um, and throughout the uh, the restaurant, you see statues and books and bowls and vases. All of these are from Arjun's past travels, um, even pictures of, you know, his family. So his home life is is all there on display to, to kind of take a look at. He might um, actually be a member of the SEA. Honestly, that would make sense. I mean, Joe Rody had his hand, obviously, in all of this. And Arjun was, uh, you know, the, the story goes that he traveled throughout Southeast Asia and, and India. And so that would totally make sense. They should, like, slowly start adding little SEA nods. And there's already so many great details throughout the, the restaurant. That would be awesome. Um, so out front, Yak and Yeti advertises conditioned air, fine food, and drinks. So it beckons the weary travelers and curious tourists and researchers and traders to come inside, stay, relax, and dine. So it's it's a wonderful place. I mean, obviously, super, super detailed and great food. I do like the food there. I had forgotten about the rooms, but now that you say that, I can totally picture the room we sat in, which did not have very many tables. And I know Matt would agree. I like when restaurants go that direction as opposed to Be Our Guest, which has the huge ballroom with table after table squeezed together, you know? I do like how each room has its own theme and own vibe. Yeah. We were downstairs. I have no idea what room it was. I feel like we were downstairs, and when you when you walk in, we went to the left. Okay. Other than the, the luggage up front, I never would have gotten the hotel vibe but there's one um you know how there's like the when you first walk in it's that's the parlor but when you go upstairs there's a balcony that kind of overlooks that parlor Mm -hmm. um when you're standing kind of overlooking down into the parlor but you look towards the staircase it really does look like a hotel um Uh like an old fancy luxury hotel it's it's really cool so yeah all the different rooms it's it's super cool but it's another example of just um you know, it's just a pleasant environment, highly themed environment, but you're not going to get that story. People, don't, you know, aren't going to necessarily care about that story, but if you want to find it, it's totally there. Yeah. Any idea behind the name? Yak and Yeti? Yeah. Well, you nope. see in India, there's Yaks, <laughs> and then there's a Yeti. Like, did he name it that, I guess? I don't know. I would assume he did. Yeah. And yeah, they I'm both sure start with a... The name. Start with a Y. It's very pleasing to the human ear. Yak. Yeti. Mm-hmm. Sound like flashcards. <laughs> y is for. 
You know, I haven't been to the Yak and Yeti since uh, we ate there that first time. I need to go back and give it another try. Mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. And how nice of what's the man's name again? Arjun. Arjun. How nice of him to hire a bunch of white Anglo-Saxon Americans to come work in his restaurant. <laughs> exactly. It's true. It's true. All right, Jeremy. I'm excited about this next one because I legit did not know it had a story until either you or Matt said it on our show. Yes. Well, it, we're going to go over to Kilimanjaro Safaris, and we're going to look at the original storyline because it has changed over the years. It's been kind of softened down, softened down to what it currently is now, um, which is just an opportunity for people to see animals. But originally, you're on the uh, Harumbe Wildlife Reserve, and as you're walking through the queue, you'll notice there's television sets and there's an African-American – well, no, he's just African. He's not American. Uh, there's an African gentleman by the name of uh, – Wilson. Wilson, thank you. His name just went right out of my head as I was trying to cover that full paw. And Wilson, you would hear on the vehicle as well as he's giving you information about the wildlife reserve and how they're doing their best to preserve the reserve from poachers. Preserve the reserve. <laughs> that's correct that's what i said and uh so there's poachers everywhere and uh which is true you know to a lot of places in africa even to this day so they're always trying to keep the poachers away so you're you're warned about them in the queue you see signs um and then in the original story version uh you are dispatched by wilson during your safari which is supposed to be like two weeks i believe but you're dispatched to go off track and to help find Little Red, who is an elephant, and reunite him with Big Red, who is his mother. Um, also an elephant. Also an elephant. <laughs> and we're, for the record, uh, who were worried that the poachers might have gotten. Now, this is the thing. And I can remember when we were there for our first visit in 2008, all the way up until, what was that, like 2012 when they started kind of revamping that? 14? Yeah, around there. Somewhere around there. The storyline kind of remained minus one big element. And that is, as you're going through your cruise, you get to the end, you veer off the path because you're going to go find uh, the the poachers. You drove by a poacher's camp. You could hear them in the distance. Um, I think at one point, too, there's even gunfire. They shoot at you. And you find Little Red. Uh, he's in the back of a vehicle. He's waving his little trunk. Mm-hmm. And woohoo, we found him. Now, in the original version, which never actually made it to opening day at Animal Kingdom, it was changed before because there was cast member previews and people were like, this is too twisted. Big Red has been killed by the poachers. And there was this massive elephant carcass that looked very authentic that freaked a lot of people out that you drove by um, and they eventually removed it out of the storyline so now the storyline is that Big Red has been killed um, but it's off off scene you don't uh, you don't see it you know off stage kind of a right, thing right it's a metaphor yeah but you know what's funny is I um, one year at the candlelight processional we were waiting in line got to talking to this lady behind us who worked with the uh, hippos or something over at Animal Kingdom, and we started talking. And she told us that the carcass, if you would, of Big Red was still backstage at that time. 
and there was a big tarp that covered it. And part of the initiation of if you worked back in that part was they would tell you on your first day, hey, go go lift up that tarp real quick and grab us something. And then you lift up and there's this what appears to be rotting elephant carcass underneath. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so creepy. Yeah, I'm showing them a picture now of what Crazy. Big Red looked like. And it looks like an actual elephant just lying Huge. there. Yeah. If you squint your eyes, it looks like the Stegosaurus in Jurassic... No, is the Stegosaurus a Jurassic Park where it's having rough bowel movements so they go and check on her? I think it's a Triceratops. Triceratops, that's right. That's what it reminds me of. Okay, so I I, I was wrong. I did know that story. I, I think I thought, now there's nothing... Like, I didn't even know there was such a thing as Harambe Wildlife Reserve. I just thought it was like this safari with no story. And you guys were like, no, there's a story. And I think that's what surprised me was that, like, oh, it's connected to the town of Harambe. I did not know that. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like the, that's kind of why people come to this town. And I guess that's the, the main draw is the tourists that come through. And they're able to have the restaurant and the entertainment out in the streets and those kind of things. Because people are coming to see the, the animals on the safari, but the poachers are encroaching. And they still have the poacher signs up in the queue, but that all part has been removed from the actual safari itself. And And I'm not upset about that because... As much as I love story and layers, um, it did kind of get... It was kind of an afterthought. Yeah, that's not what we're there for. We're there to see animals. No one's ride was enhanced by the story. Yeah. If anything, you got to the end and you were like, wait, what? Poachers? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember something about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Good ride, though. No, oh, totally. show a dead animal in the, in the pre-show video. Oh, yeah, or or um, and then they show like after they've been skinned and become like rugs or something like that. I forget which animal it is, but you see someone. It's Wilson t- talking about poachers, and it shows a gun. Someone fires a gun, and then it shows the animal dead on the ground. It's like still pretty dark, but again, it's just limited to now the pre-show. And then a lot of times the driver will will mention poachers, maybe with like the the, the tusks or something. But other than that, yeah, nothing. Mm-hmm. That has to be the pre-show I have seen the least of, of all the pre-shows across property. Just because I fast-pass it and zip right through. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're not really missing much. I mean, they talk about the animals on the on the thing. But the thing I like about it is they show like a plane taking off with like the Harambe logo on the side. Nice. It's kind of cool. Nice. But, you know, the one thing that is sad about it is, you know, I miss Wilson cutting in with... Simba one, Simba one, yeah. you know. And now, anytime somebody says Simba, and I say Simba one, it's a very small crowd that gets that's what that I named joke. my first car when I was sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. I think somebody actually has that as their license plate in the state oh, of Florida. That. That's awesome. What if one time he turns on the radio and you hear Rafiki? I said, "Are you ready for the party?" <laughs> what a throwback! That would be amazing. Hello, my friends. <laughs> So many people. <laughs> oh, man. I really cannot picture that park with a parade now. That seems so weird. No. Very bizarre. Anyway, all right. Keeping in this park for one more attraction, the Tree of Life. You guys, I had no idea about this, but this was what was released with all of those opening day brochures and all of the press releases when Animal Kingdom first opened. This was the quote about the Tree of Life and its backstory. 
Quote, Once upon a time, no vegetation would grow on Discovery Island. There were no trees, no shrubs, no flowers, nothing. It was a barren piece of land. Then one day, a tiny ant planted a seed and made a wish. He asked for a tree to grow, a tree large enough to provide shelter for all the animals. Magically, the ant's wish came true and a tree began to grow, and it kept growing until there was room beneath its limbs for all the animals from A, ants, to Z, zebras. And as the tree continued to reach for the heavens, the images of all the animals that took shelter beneath its shade appeared on its trunk, roots, and branches. And that little ant, that little ant grew up to be Flick. <laughs> Whoa, it's a magic tree, you guys. I did not know. That, I had no idea either, and that's very, very interesting. Um, you know, uh, unnecessary, sure, but uh, yeah. interesting nonetheless. <laughs> well, we were talking about, like, what attractions and restaurants and stuff to do, and I, for some reason I thought of the Tree of Life, and I was like, I'll just Google that. Surely there's, I mean, there's got to be a story. It is literally the icon of that park, but I did not expect that. Did the ant also wish for projection shows to be on? <laughs> 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 and one day, when it grows tall enough, first it will drop branches on unsuspecting guests. <laughs> and then... I do like the symbolism of an ant like being the reason that that giant tree grew. That's cool. Well, I mean, yeah, because the ants make their home underneath the tree, and it's tough to be above. I love the Tree of Life. In fact, every time I see it, like I'm reminded of just how brilliant it was. And then I'm also reminded of the things that they thought about putting there first like what was it, like a carousel or something yeah there was going to be a three-tiered carousel and then there was going to be like the whole entrance was going to be themed to noah's ark yeah i'm like oh thank the lord none of that worked out and we just have this beautiful tree of life which i think is symbolic in so many ways yeah it's very true good stuff and finally bring us home with such with such a lame story <laughs> look i had no idea so it's it's cool it's cool to me so i i had a lot of these i just heard little inklings but didn't know the details but this i had no clue so over in disney springs uh we're gonna take a look at deluxe burger uh the story goes in 1950 martin and uh his wife clara sinclair uh florida yeah, they were Florida cattle ranchers, so they discovered this natural spring in nearby land that we now know as uh, Disney Springs. Uh, so Martin was nicknamed the Cattle King of the Springs. <laughs> and in this area, they ran the Glowing Oak Ranch. And the ranch house was built just steps away from the spring that they had discovered. And from the ranch house, um, the Sinclairs would often cook meals for the ranch hands and uh, locals and their neighbors. Um Mr. Sinclair visited the World's Fair in St. Louis and woo woo shout out <laughs> homeland discovered a new favorite food which was hamburgers and he brought that love back home and the glowing oak ranch became a family restaurant so eventually in 1921 it became the glowing oak restaurant and so the family, uh, the business still runs in the family, and today we have Martin Sinclair the sixth, who in 2016 renamed the restaurant to Deluxe Burger. 
I like Glowing Oak Restaurant. I don't know why, if it was in the family for so long, why you would change it to Deluxe Burger. Yeah, with a hyphen. That's the worst. I think that's because um, the fifth of that namesake, what's his name again? Martin Sinclair. Martin Sinclair V. uh, In the 80s, he was uh, pretty much snorting all the profits, and he had to sell the name rights in order to uh, keep the business alive. That makes sense. Okay, Sinclair... Yes. That name is tied to Disney. Dinosaur. Okay, yes. And maybe even like the 1964 World's Fair with the dinosaur diorama. Well, Sinclair is a, is a gas station, and that's kind of why they named the dinosaurs that. It's like the joke of eventually they'd become gasoline. Oh, uh, okay. But I know I've pictured it. Like, is, is it on the gas pumps in Chester and Hester or something like that? Possibly, but even like in St. Louis, I remember growing up as a kid, they had like a big dinosaur out front of their gas station. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sinclair Stations. Yeah, I know it's somewhere in Dinoland, USA. I'm guessing there's no connection to the Deluxe Burger people, but probably not. The Society of Gas Station Owners and Cattle Farmers. <laughs> I was say, was Mister was Mister uh, Saint Clair? Was he a collector of fine artifacts from around the world? Because he might be a member of SEA as well. Yep. I'm picturing like the SEA is like the Illuminati of the Disney universe. Yes. <laughs> like, like people are a part of it, but you don't really know. I feel like there's got to be someone else in the parks already who they could like retroactively name a member. Steven Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, there you go. So many stories. Now you are educated, and when you ride these attractions, eat at these restaurants, or visit these stores, you know that you are actually part of a story and not just entering a Disney version of Walmart or whatever. So, <laughs> You probably were confused before, but now you're not, so you're welcome. <laughs> Although I shouldn't say that. Maybe Walmart has a backstory, too, and I just haven't looked it up. I don't know. Anyway, Jonathan, a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back on. Thank you. Tell our listeners where they can find you if they would like to. Absolutely. So I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, It's at Jonathan Harville. uh, H-A-R-V-I-L-L. That's how you spell my last name. Okay, cool. Well, we hope to have you back soon. Always a joy. Um, And listeners, you can find us at Mad Chatters on Instagram and Twitter or on Facebook. And you can send those emails like Kyle did about Memento Mori. Uh, to comments at madchatters.net. So thanks for that email. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. Take a little time to find the magic in every day. Bye-bye now. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that was Jeopardy. Good segue. <laughs> um, I had a second. It's a little light bulb that that blinks, but I didn't think it was going to be funny. It just popped in my head, and it was what is Aaron Wallace's pumpkin necklace? Oh um, my gosh! Yes, but I didn't think enough people had seen the picture, so I was just <laughs> that's funny. My first answer for that, I thought I was even offended by it, so I didn't use it. But I was going to say, what is the electrical water pageant? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. A little light bulb to blink. Oh, I love it. You're such a millennial. I offended myself. (laughs) How dare I?
can we just talk though how wonderfully awful Walker Texas Ranger was as a show? Did you guys watch it? So good. That paired with Dr. Quinn. Yes, and Martial Law or Early Edition. Yeah, Early Edition. I was just about to say that. Yes, Saturday yes. nights were my jam. I mean, when I was a kid, my Friday, I was so cool. My Friday night was ABC, TGIF, and my Saturday night was CBS. Like, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. 100%. There will never be another 90s. It's so sad. And by the way, not that I looked recently, but Walker, Texas Ranger is not streaming anywhere, and it kind of hurts my heart because I really was craving a couple episodes. Yeah. Neither is neither is Dr. Quinn or Martial Law or Early Edition. Come on, CBS. Yeah, that's so weird. With their stupid platform you that you have to pay money for, you'd think they put those shows on there. True. And you know, like ABC on their app, they have like a I don't think they call it nostalgia, but they call it like throwback or something. And you can watch a lot of those older shows for free on the ABC app. Right. Well and that's what CBS does, but apparently not every show. Boy, I, I really need to watch rewatch Dr. Quinn. That was such a good show. Was it, though? Like, I loved it, but I'm just afraid. I'm afraid if I try to watch it again. Yeah, you know, maybe. But the flip side of that is, I remember watching season one. Because you remember, like, when, when TV seasons first came out. Like, Dr. Quinn was, like, the first show ever to put out a season on DVD. And it cost, like, $120. <laughs> like, I remember it being outrageous. Jeremy, true story. I have the entire box set of Dr. Quinn in my office at work right now. <laughs> what? Why? We bought it for, we bought it for my mom several years ago for Mother's Day and she just never really got around to watching it and I had a friend who when she found out I had it wanted me to lend it to her and somewhere in the exchange it just never got to her so it's been sitting in my office for years. For years. For years. <laughs> but it's the whole huge box. I think I think when you come down next to Florida, you need to bring it and let me borrow it. In the same way that I purchased all the seasons of ER and Derek watched them, and I remember I'd like mail you like a season at a time, so that way you could watch it. Yeah, and hopefully Doctor Quinn holds up as well as ER did, which is extremely well. Agreed. Yeah, and they're both about medicine, so I don't see why not. Oh, good point. Yeah. On this week's show, we want to do sort of a part two of a series that we started way back on episode 176. Sorry, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I said series, <laughs> not series. <laughs> Let me start that again.